The Lord revives my soul and guides me along right pathways for his name's sake. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. I don't know who makes the preaching schedule around here, but last week, Ben got the dramatic account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. The week before that, on July 4th, Father Chris got the story of Jesus being ridiculed in the temple and the sending of the Twelve. This week, I basically get some crust from a Markin sandwich. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this literary technique used by St. Mark known as a Markin sandwich. And it's when he starts out by telling one story, and then he inserts a second story in the middle, and then concludes the original story. So in a Markin sandwich, the first story is like the bread, and the second story is the filling in the middle. This week's gospel is from Mark chapter 6, and you'll notice that it's in two sections. It begins with verses 30 through 34, and then it skips to verses 53 to 56 for a total of nine verses. The section in the middle that we skip, verses 35 through 52, is 18 verses. In the first section for today, the disciples have just returned from their ministry assignment, and Jesus says, let's take a break. So they get in a boat and they head for a secluded place. Then we skip down to the second section where they come ashore and they're met by crowds of people seeking to be healed. That's it. But do you know what happens in between these two sections? A lot. That middle section includes both the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. When you cut out that large middle section, the gospel reading is basically like the disciples took a boat ride. Amen. But if we read the entire passage, we realize that the disciples actually took two boat rides and witnessed two extraordinary miracles. So you see what I mean by the crust of a Markin sandwich. Why did the lectionary deli chefs carve out the meat of this reading? Honestly, I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. Next Sunday, we will read the middle section, the stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, though not from Mark's gospel, but rather from John's. And while there doesn't seem to be much happening in today's gospel on the face of it, perhaps the exclusion of these two magnificent miracles is designed to help us see more clearly some important truths that might otherwise be overshadowed. So let's have a look then, shall we? Two weeks ago, we learned how our Lord called the Twelve. He instructed them. He gave them authority over unclean spirits, and he sent them out to minister in his name. The scriptures say that they proclaimed that all should repent, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Last week, we read a kind of interlude. We heard of the tragic martyrdom of John the Baptist. This week, we actually pick up with the disciples returning from that mission. So verse 30 begins, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. 
The first lesson that we can learn is that we too are called by Jesus, instructed, given authority, sent out to minister in his name, each one of us. This is the vocation of every baptized Christian. If you're not sure that the life you're living or the work that you're doing is a part of your Christian vocation, start up those prayers. God will let you know. As the psalmist writes, he will guide you along right pathways for his name's sake. So upon their return, we hear that the disciples told Jesus all that they had done and taught. The second lesson that we can learn is that we too are invited to share our experiences with our Lord Jesus Christ. When we come home from a trip, we naturally want to share the experience with our mom or dad, brother or sister, husband or wife, son or daughter, or even a dear friend. Why shouldn't we do the same with Jesus? Here are some questions to ponder. Do we share with Jesus the experiences of the work we do on his behalf? Do we pray to him and share the highs and lows, the challenges, frustrations, surprises, and joy? Do we thank him for his instruction, guidance, authority, and power? for the grace to accomplish all that he has called us to? Do we pray for those we serve and invite his presence into their lives? We could. The disciples did. They returned to Jesus, and St. Mark tells us, they told him all that they had done and taught. We do well to bear in mind that the disciples haven't just returned from some intense ministry work, but they've also learned the news that their friend and companion, John the Baptist, has been executed. So not only are they worn from their travels and ministry work, they are no doubt wounded with grief. Notice what our Lord does next. He says to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely, some translations say, to a secluded place, and rest a while. The third lesson we can learn, and one that is often underrated and thus bears repeating, is that Jesus invites us to rest after our labors. He knows the importance of rest. He himself modeled this in his own life withdrawing time and again to secluded places for rest and refreshment. The battery needs recharging. Holy rest does not mean the absence of God. I can share from firsthand experience. A priest prays for a living, right? Does that mean a day off is a day without prayer? Certainly not. Holy rest does not mean the absence of God. It means stopping and turning towards God to be filled by him, filled by his presence and his grace, by his Holy Spirit, that we might have strength to meet the days ahead, to accomplish the work he calls us to. How important is the work that God calls us to? It's pretty important. 
And if the work is important, then so too is the rest. Because it is the rest which inspires us and enables us and empowers us to do the work. Did you notice in the gospel that the disciples actually depart from Jesus to go and do the work? It's when they return to Jesus that they are invited to rest. What does this holy rest look like in our own lives? It can and should take place regularly at different intervals in the course of a day, a week, a month, or even a year. We should rest throughout the day, in the morning or noontime or evening, turning our hearts to God in prayer and spending quiet time in his presence daily. Throughout the course of a week, we are called, actually we are commanded, to rest on the Sabbath, to rest for one whole day out of seven. And we should also rest through periodic seasonal retreats. Spiritual retreats are not the same as vacation. Oftentimes vacations leave us more exhausted than our day-to-day life. Sometimes we return from vacation eager to get some rest. This is not a spiritual retreat. A spiritual retreat is time spent apart in a lonely, secluded place for the express purpose of being with Jesus, resting in his presence, being filled by his spirit. When was the last time we took a spiritual retreat? What are our patterns, our habits of spiritual rest? Now is the perfect opportunity to take stock and renew our disciplines of spiritual rest and retreat that we might be refreshed for the work of ministry that God has called us to. These are three lessons that we can learn from this brief gospel passage. I'd like to offer one final observation. Jesus instructs the disciples, he empowers them, he sends them out, he receives them upon their return, he listens to their experiences, and he invites them to a period of rest. But things do not always work out as planned. This hoped-for spiritual retreat is interrupted by the multitudes of people who follow Jesus and the disciples. They're actually waiting for them at their destination, so much for a lonely, secluded spot. Jesus just planned this whole getaway for the express purpose of getting away, but the crowds that they left behind now lie before them. They've gotten nowhere, or at least they didn't get away. But here's the point. How does Jesus react in this situation? Is he irritated, frustrated, resentful, angry, impatient? Nope. None of these. To the contrary, St. Mark tells us he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Beloved, in the end, those in the crowd, they are us. We are the sheep who are lost. Jesus is the good shepherd who loves us, who cares for us. In spite of our sporadic faithfulness, our fickle nature, in spite of our forgetfulness, our selfishness and disobedience, our distrust and fear, 
He is the good shepherd. He does not despise us. He is not impatient with us. He has compassion on us. With Jesus as our shepherd, we shall not be in want. He makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us beside still waters. He revives our souls and guides us along right pathways for his name's sake. May God the Father grant us the grace of his Holy Spirit to faithfully fulfill our vocation as Christians, to share with Jesus all that we experience, to follow him regularly to places of rest and refreshment, and to have compassion for others as he has for us. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost.